Father God, um, we thank you that you have made yourself known uh, to us, your fallen creatures. Uh, you have revealed yourself through, through your word. Um, we thank you for um, the scriptures uh, that tell us uh, who you are, that you speak to us, and especially we know that ultimately we come to know you through your word, um, the Lord Jesus, the word made flesh. And uh, Father, we thank you uh, that again today we can look at um, the real Jesus um, in John's gospel. Uh, we pray that you would um, really speak to us deeply at the deepest level of our beings, uh, really change our hearts, um, that we may be uh, taken up by the glory of Christ um, with a greater vision of him, uh, that we may be subsequently transformed for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today's reading is uh, John chapter 9. As he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him who, how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But other, others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. 
and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Uh, well, I'm, I'm both pleased and disappointed to be with you here today. So uh, uh, pleased because it's wonderful to catch up with people I haven't seen for a while or to meet, meet new people. Uh, disappointed because you, you may have heard Duncan's uh, bulged a disc in his neck so he's pinched a nerve going down one arm so if you see him looking like this that's the reason and so uh, I'm sort of the the tag team replacement who's come in just to help out for the day so it's disappointing for that to be the case. Uh, uh, in fact Duncan told me is it a triathlon that's going on around here right now? Yeah yeah so I expected you all to be in sort of lycra and t-shirts and stuff but uh, you know getting into it but apparently not uh, that's okay. I. Duncan sent me a map of how to get here and I got down here and 
hit the roundabout down the road and I thought, I've got no idea. So I just parked and walked. Probably some of you did that. Did some of you do that? No, you're probably smarter than me. Yeah, there was a way of getting here and I didn't work it out. Uh, we're looking at John chapter 9. I understand you've been working through this uh, uh, gospel, uh, thinking it through. There is a, an outline in the leaflet. So uh, if you'd like to have that open in front of you, that'll be useful. And why don't I just pray for, for Duncan and for us as we get into God's word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a God who, who speaks. Uh, you're not dumb. You actually do uh, communicate with us. And we thank you to do, do it with clarity so that we can understand what a relationship with you is like, so we can make sense of this world. And Father, we pray that as we reflect on John chapter 9 this morning, you will give us clarity, understanding and insight so that we can know what it means to have a relationship with you and how to go about that. So Father, uh, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my uh, favourite cartoons in the newspaper is Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, I don't know if everyone knows that, but um, it's a cartoon based on sort of a five-year-old, precocious five-year-old boy who has a stuffed tiger that he has an imaginary relationship with. So the cartoon's all about the relationship between this boy and his, his, his tiger. Uh, one cartoon came to mind as I was reflecting on John chapter 9 today. It's a scene where uh, Calvin, the boy, and Hobbes, his toy tiger, are walking along having a dialogue, and it goes like this. Hobbes, the tiger, says to Calvin, is it a right to remain ignorant? Is it a right to remain ignorant. And Calvin says, I don't know, but I refuse to find out. And, uh, and I thought that sometimes life is a bit like that. Uh, sometimes ignorance can just be a gap in knowledge that's a little embarrassing. Uh, last week I was preaching in the city and talking about the, the section in Mark's Gospel where the disciples finally work out Jesus as the Messiah, but then they're confused about what it means. You know, what sort of leadership will he exercise? And I said, we're coming up for a state election. There are three candidates that have been suggested as being potential premiers for our state. And I put their pictures up on the screen. I said, here is Nick. You know, I went to law school with Nick. Uh, here is Jay. He's the existing, you know, premier. And here is, and I forgot his name, you know. <laughs> it was really embarrassing to have forgotten Stephen Marshall's name. So sometimes ignorance is just embarrassing. Uh, sometimes ignorance is a little more willful and it's dangerous. So uh, today we're aware of the great dangers of smoking. You smoke, you're on serious medical risks. Uh, the packets on the cigarettes give you grotesque pictures of people who've smoked and suffered the consequences. So if you smoke, there's a level of ignorance which is willful. That is, you choose to ignore uh, the health warnings. And then sometimes I think ignorance can just be rude and offensive, can't it? You know, I, I think um, racial discrimination falls into that category. Just rude and offensive. When we come to John chapter 9, it's all about ignorance in different ways. The way people react to Jesus without true knowledge. Back in chapter 8, if you've been here, you've been looking at that chapter, Jesus makes enormous claims to enlighten people, to dispel ignorance. Chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Jesus comes to dispel ignorance, to complete the picture about what God is like. And so John 9, we explore ignorance when it comes to Jesus and why it is that people remain ignorant. At the end of the chapter, you would have heard read, there are a number of very provocative things Jesus says in this chapter. But towards the end of verse 39, he says, for judgment I've come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see or think they see will become blind. Jesus comes to deal with spiritual ignorance, uh, with what's called blindness here. And for some, the ignorance is removed, but for others, especially those who think they're already enlightened, it remains. Well, let's, uh, let's dig in. Let's see what John 9's got to teach us here. Uh, we encounter, at the start of John chapter 9, we have an amazing miracle. Jesus and his disciples are on their way, point A to point B, uh, probably heading towards the temple, we think, and they encounter a man who is born blind. So this is his state from birth. He's probably located outside the temple, good spot to beg because the the Old Testament law indicated that a a good Jew would have to be generous to a poor person. A great way to captive audience going into the temple, right? Stand outside the gates uh, where it was okay to do it. But no one needs to tell you that this blind man has had a tough life. He is totally dependent. There is no welfare net uh, for this man. He doesn't receive any concessions for the disabled. That's not his situation. And Jesus steps up, spits on some dirt, applies it to his eyes, tells him to go somewhere and wash it off. He does, and he comes back seeing. Now, that that really is quite an extraordinary miracle, supernatural power. Can I say, if that happened regularly here of a Sunday, we'd have to block people coming in. You know, if Duncan had magic hands, you know, and he sort of came out the front here and said, you know, put his hand in his neck, heal, you know, and suddenly he could move and says, Paul, go home, that would be extraordinary. If he could do that on a regular basis for people, it would be, you know, barricades up to keep people out. It would draw a crowd. But the thing is, in John's Gospel, there isn't much of a focus on miracles, interestingly enough, even though we know Jesus does a stack of them. And in fact, they're not even called miracles in John's gospel. There are only about half, half a dozen or so that are recorded in this gospel, very select few, and they're called signs, not miracles, signs. And the reason for that is because they point to something of significance about Jesus and his miracles. The great power in them is not so much the miracle itself, as what it indicates for people. So what does this miracle, what does it signify? Uh, What what does it communicate to us? The blindness that's being spoken of here in John 9 is not just about the physical limitations of not being able to see. The, The byplay in this chapter is all to do with spiritual blindness. In 9, chapter 9, verse 2, the Jesus and the disciples, they see the blind man, and his disciples, they ask him this question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, later in the chapter, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, effectively ask the same question. 
a slightly different direction, but the same question. Verse 34. The Pharisees say to the man, who was previously blind but now can see, they say to him, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you? How dare you lecture us? Now do you hear the, the underlying message here? It is that your disability as a blind man is directly related to your sin in some respect. This is God's way of dealing with you because either you or your parents sinned. Now in a general sense, let me say, I think uh, sin and sickness or physical problems in our world, they are connected. Uh, you know, if you read through the storyline of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, people rebel against God. And from that, that time on, there is a, a disjunct between the created order and God himself. Um, it's a fragile world. Uh, there is sickness and suffering, there is natural disorder, all those things. There's a sense in which the problems we face in our world do reflect a broken relationship with God, sin. But what about the narrower view that's being expressed here? Do you understand? What the disciples and the Pharisees are saying, this man's blindness is because of either his sin or given he was born blind, maybe his parents' sin that has been revisited upon him. That's the question that's being asked. Jesus dismisses that question, but what I want you to understand very clearly is that the blindness here had direct religious or spiritual connection. People understood the way in which they went together. This blind man wasn't able to go into the temple. He was probably begging outside of it. He wasn't allowed in because of his inability to actually see. He was seen as unclean. Uh, He was viewed as being cut off from God and his people. And of course the irony here is he begs outside of a temple that he can't go into to be close to God. And it's sad. It's a daily reminder of his distance from God himself. But of course that means that when the blind man sees, it's much more than a miracle. It's much more than that. In John's Gospel, light is always contrasted with darkness. So the lightness, the light represents knowledge, it represents goodness, uh, fullness of life. Darkness always communicates ignorance, death, sickness, hopelessness. When the blind man sees, it points us to the heart of Jesus' purpose in coming into the world, to bring people out of darkness, to save the lost, to rescue people from their sin. See, that's the the byplay, the key message that's coming out in this, uh, this chapter. But what I want to focus on for the next little while are the contrasting ways in which people in John chapter 9 respond to the light, how they react to it. So I'll just pick a few different groups so we can explore the nature of their ignorance or otherwise as they encounter Jesus. So firstly, the parents. 
Uh, we see them being called in by the religious leaders who want to question them. They are convinced this blind man was blind, so they check with the parents. Good move. Verse 19, they say to them, Is this your son, they ask? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it he can now see? Verse 20, the parents say, Well, we know he's our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. It's a fair enough response, isn't it? We don't know he wasn't there. Uh, That's essentially what what they're saying. But can I say there is a reason for their ignorance? And you pick it up straight away, verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Now understand their ignorance at this point is motivated by fear. So you think about it for a moment. If you've had a disabled child, or if you know people who've had disabled children, you know the agony um, that parents feel at that point. We've got a young man with severe autism who visits our family home. He used to come about once a week when he was in his uh, late teens and 20s. Now he's mid-40s, and he comes about once every six weeks. He's a guy who goes to the church. So he's come in ever since our, young, our eldest was about six months old. And we've known his parents over that period. One is now dead. But I know the agony those parents felt, wondering what would become of this young man, whether he would survive, how much help he would. Every parent who has a disabled child of some significance, some significant disability, knows that agony. Okay. So here they have their son, who's now of age, can now see for the first time in his life. And they said, well, we don't know how it happened. <laughs> of course not. You know, we wouldn't have thought to ask that question. There's just no way, is there? You want to find the guy, you want to thank him, you want to... Like, there is no way you would have that reaction. But their ignorance, their, their unwillingness to own up, is because of their fear. Their fear about what's going on. I think it's a a tragedy that they distance themselves from Jesus. But I think it's still the same today, that people often do it because of fear. I remember when I was at university, I became a Christian when I was there. One of my best friends became a Christian maybe six months after I did. He came to church one Sunday night. He was really struck by the preaching of the gospel. He afterwards sat down. We prayed together. It was really clear. He was ecstatic about that moment. I caught up with him about three days later. We were at law school together. And uh, he said, I'm no longer a Christian. I said, why? He said, well, I, I went home and my father, who's an atheist, was so disparaging of Christianity, I just didn't think I could live with that so I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. It was just that that fear of that relationship. But it operates for Christians as well. There's a temptation. Uh, I've got a friend who's similar age to me, still very young, uh, but um, 
a few years ago, he was in the hospital uh, being treated for cancer. In fact, they thought he was going to die. I thought that when I visited him, actually, he looked so sick. And when I caught up with him, he, he said, when I left the firm I was in, he's an engineer, when I left that, uh, I knew I was coming in for a serious operation. There was a good chance I wasn't going to live. So I got everybody in the firm together, all the people who worked for me, gathered them together, and I explained I was going in for this operation, but that I was confident about what was going to happen to me for all eternity uh, because I put my trust in Jesus, and I urged them, if they hadn't done that, to seriously think about it. And then he said, and I felt so ashamed. I thought, why? <laughs> I wouldn't have thought there was any shame. Like, you did a great job. He said, no, 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 let me keep going. He said, afterwards, there was a guy I'd been working with for 20 years who came up to me and said, George, that's not his name, George, he said, you're a really dark horse. I've been working with you for 20 years. I had no idea you were a Christian. And he said, I felt so ashamed. Um, there was just a fear thing that was operating that caused me to be quiet about my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see fear operating for these people here, these parents. Can I say, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, uh, do not ever be ashamed of finding out about him or if you are a follower of associating yourself with him. Don't be ignorant in that sense. Then we come to the Pharisees. Theirs is a very different sort of response, a different sort of ignorance. They refuse to see the light, to understand what Jesus is on about. They make inquiries about this sign, this miracle that Jesus has done, but only so they can disprove it and discount it. That's what drives them. Verse 15. How is it you can see, they ask the man. And he says, well, they, he put mud in my eyes, I washed and now I can see. And then they have an argument among themselves right, about whether or not it's a miracle from God. And basically the argument is, well, it can't possibly be from God because he broke the Sabbath. Right? And he's done it in two ways. Right? He's gotten some dirt, spat on it and made mud and applied it to the eyes. Right? That's work. You know, it's akin to working in a brick factory for a day. You know, like, this is terrible. You know? Or the fact that he actually healed the guy on a Sabbath. You know, surely a spiritual man would have waited to heal the guy till the following day. And you just... You just feel, uh, well, I feel, even when I read it, angry at the way these guys respond to this blind man's situation. They are so caught up in their religious rules that they are hardened by an act of amazing grace and mercy that they should have just been thrilled about. They should have been. You can almost see the blind man is saying, I can see, I can see. And the Pharisees are saying, ah, yes, but you shouldn't be able to, you know. Really? I know someone who, um, when they became a Christian, went home and told their parents. And their parents were extraordinarily angry. They said, we raised you to be a Christian. What do you mean you become a Christian? 
And uh, the person said, well, I've, for the first time, I've entered into a personal relationship with God through Jesus. It is real and it is alive for me. And they said, what do you mean? We brought you up in that way. And they were so angry. He then told them where he was going to church, which was to Trinity in town. And they were furious. They said, well, at least if you're going to get serious about religion, you could go to the church we brought you up in, right? Not that one. Uh, They didn't go to it, but that was beside the point. Do you understand that that often that sort of religious rule-keeping, all those boundaries, they can be dangerous. They can blind you to the heart of God. There's a level of cynicism that you see operating with these Pharisees. They inquire of the blind man, don't get any satisfaction there. They go to the parents, and then they go back to the blind man. We'll give it a second shot. Verses 24 to 27. Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man, that is Jesus, is a sinner. And the guy, the blind man now can see, says, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. <laughs> he's getting quite cheeky at this point. Right? He's sort of sticking it up, the Pharisees, you know, getting a bit sassy. And they say, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, if you, you ever watch American, you know, sort of uh, um, court scene dramas at this point, right, the, the lawyer would jump up and say, Your Honour, badgering the witness. <laughs> That's what's happening, you know. How, how did he open your eyes? He's already told them. I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? (laughs) He's just sticking in the knife at this point, I think, having fun with them, right? But it just sets them off. Totally sets them off. You see, up until this point, there's been that, that pretense of reasonableness, the pretense of openness, being inquiring, intelligently assessing, weighing up things, and all that just flies out the window. (laughs) Totally. And I reckon it can be exactly the same today. One thing I've worked out over the years is Australians are incredibly cynical in life and superstitious in death. Cynical in life, superstitious in death. Uh, So whenever I take funerals, it's sort of a professional hazard for me. I'll be talking with people afterwards, and often those who, who don't have any particular spiritual preference at all, even say they're agnostic or atheist, will say, oh, X is, you know, looking down on us now, and, you know, like if it was Victor Harbour and he was a bowls player, he's up in heaven playing bowls, and every bowl he bowls just rests against the jack every time, every time, you know? Like it's just a wonderful utopian existence this person now has, you know? Uh, But in life, I think actually Australians are incredibly cynical. Cynical and superstitious, you know. We're we're a strange sort of breed, I think. And I reckon it's the same when uh, people make inquiries about Jesus. Often I reckon it's a smokescreen. So they can actually put up a barrier to not have to be serious about Jesus. See, if someone doesn't want to know about Jesus, 
Now talk about the problems that the church has, the ones they've encountered, or the fact that science really has disproven the Bible. Well, they'll say to me, prove to me God exists, but actually it doesn't matter how much proof you provide, it's never enough, to be quite honest. There's that sort of cynicism that's operating here. Or it can just be pride. See, the blind man who can see, he sees through the Pharisees. And so he decides to preach a sermon to them. It's a short one, doesn't have much time. Verses 30 to 34. He says, so you're saying Jesus is a sinner, but God only listens to those who worship him. And never before has a man born blind had his eyes opened. So if he's not from God, how did he do that? You know, he actually does a bit of work on their logic, spiritual logic, and they just cannot take it. Verse 34, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they just throw him out. And it's Jesus who later confirms that the Pharisees are actually the blind ones, so proud, so confident, that they're okay with God. Uh, but these spiritual experts were outdone by the blind man. All, all across the board. I think pride can be a real barrier to putting a trust in God's Son. People often feel insulted and their pride gets dented if you suggest that they're in spiritual darkness because they don't follow Jesus. It's either true or it's not. But people can be quite offended. People feel it's incredibly rude to suggest they haven't lived a good enough life to be right with God. But of course, that's the point of the Bible. No one's lived a good enough life to be right with God. It's impossible to do it. Or people get offended if you say that religions that exclude Jesus are false and deficient. But see, that is the reality that Jesus is pointing to here. He is the one who comes to bring light in terms of relationship with God and ultimately die so people can have that relationship with God. So without him, you actually can't have a relationship with God. And at one level, that is quite offensive, I think. But it's true. Then we've got the blind man. He sees. He moves from darkness to light, and he does it in more way than one. He is the man called by Jesus, and he's given his sight. Verse 17, he says, no, no, he's a prophet. He's sent from God. He does miracles. Then later, verse 35, when Jesus hears he's been thrown out by the Pharisees, he comes to him and says, verse 35, do you, do you believe in the Son of Man? And at this point, Jesus is referring to himself, but he's using the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, uh, the one sent by God who comes in judgment of the whole world, God himself. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man says, who is he, who is he sir? Tell me, so I can believe in him. 
And Jesus says, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one who is speaking to you. And he says, Lord, I believe. And he worships him. See, this guy gets double sight. Double sight. He sees and he sees again. And here's the one who illustrates the enlightened response to Jesus. Jesus comes into the world and what he does is he divides the world into two clear groups. There are those who accept Jesus and there are those who reject Jesus. There are those who worship him, that is, treat him as God. There are those who treat him as just a a man or maybe even a fable, just a story. To reject Jesus is to stay blind and ignorant. And people can not see Jesus for lots of legitimate reasons at one level. That is because they haven't explored, don't have information, uh, haven't, haven't actually found out. But there can also be illegitimate reasons too. But the true test of whether you see is whether you worship Jesus. That's the bottom line here. Now when it talks about worshipping Jesus, we're not talking about some liturgical dance or singing in church or something like that. That's, that's not what's on view when Jesus talks about worship here in John chapter 9. What we're talking about is the fact that Jesus himself occupies centre place in heart, mind and life. It's interesting, right at the start, this I jumped over in verse 3 of chapter 9. Jesus says, now it's not the sin of the man or his parents that caused him to be born blind, He says, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So that through this sign, people would see who I am, says Jesus, and put their trust in me. That's what's going on here. So can I ask you, how might the work of God be displayed in your life. What might that look like? I took a funeral this week for uh, Leith McGillivray, 87-year-old. She was a history buff and uh, she had dementia for the last seven or eight years that meant she wasn't able to communicate at all. Prior to that, she was a single woman. She prepared her own funeral and did it in some detail. There were 11 passages of the Bible that were read at her funeral. And the reason there were 11 was she didn't want to leave it up to chance that the preacher might muck it up. Uh, So she had this sort of storyline of the gospel, you know, traced through these 11 sections from the Bible. So even if the preacher was hopeless, the Bible would do do its job. Can I say, what she was doing was, uh, at that point, was planning how the work of God might be displayed even in her death. And everyone, there are a number of people who weren't followers of Jesus who came up to me afterwards and said, ah, I really get why she was a follower of Jesus now. It makes sense. She designed a service to explain it. And she was a lady who had troubles in life. She suffered with depression, fear, anxiety, all sorts of difficulties, racked with those things. 
And the people gathered there knew that about her. But then they could see the believers there gathered saying, but God has taken her home. This was never home. She's gone home now. And they could see that. How might the work of God be displayed in your life? When I was thinking about that, I remembered another young guy in town. He's um, late 20s, a university graduate, did a PhD, and it took him 18 months to try and uh, find a job. Eventually got one interstate in Melbourne. After 18 months, you know, 10 years study, finally gets his first job. We farewelled him from a church in town, and then 12 months later, I'd heard he'd lost that job. And I just felt really sad for this guy. 12 months, and he's, he's unemployed again and struggling. And I asked one of his friends what had happened. He said, ah. Oh. He said, um, Matthew was really enjoying his work, uh, but then the bosses in this firm asked him to falsify findings in his work uh, for the sake of selling a product they were making. And he explained that he wouldn't be able to do that with integrity because he was, he was a Christian. He was a follower of Jesus, and so he couldn't do that. And they said, you either do it or you do not have a job. Now, I know the agony this, this bloke went through trying to get this job and being in that situation where his life was on pause because of it. But uh, what he said was, uh, if that's the case, I'll resign. He said, because I, I will not do something I know will dishonour God. Now at that point he made it very clear to his employers he was acting out of integrity because of his convictions as a follower of Jesus. I want to say to you that the work of God was displayed in his life because he said, I'm a worshipper of Jesus. How can I, the one who gave me sight, how can I not identify with him? Friends, how might the work of God be made known in your life? I want to be made known to those around you because of your stance in following the Lord Jesus. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for, for what's an extraordinary part of the Bible. And we're staggered really by the fact that anyone could just, without surgery or, or medication, heal a blind person who's been born that way. So we're in awe and wonder of your authority and power in this world. And yet, Father, we, we get it that it's not so much about the miraculous, much more about the fact that Jesus was sent into this world so that we might see what it means to have a relationship with you, understand the implications of forgiveness and life. And, Father, we pray that and for those of us who are still wrestling with that today, you'll, you'll help us to work it through to actually ask the tough questions about why we might not have grabbed hold of that truth to date. And then for many of us, Father, we pray that you will help us to be like the blind man himself, uh, that is seeing straight through religiosity and, and rules and regulations 
And it's a saying that, that being a follower of yours is to be a worshipper of Jesus. And Father, we pray you'll help us to work out how we identify that way internally and externally as we live every day of the week. So Father, go before us, we pray, and uh, graciously help us to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.